Your ears do not deceive you. You've just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. This is Byron O'Neill, your host for today's episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner. Today, I am joined by John Jennings. John is an Eisner Award winner, a Hugo winner, and a New York Times bestselling author who is a professor of media studies at the University of California at Riverside. John is a creator collaborator of My Superhero is Black, Kindred, Parable of the Sower, and he has a new miniseries coming out in February with Marvel Comics' The Silver Surfer Ghostlight with artist Valentin Delandro, which we're going to dive into today. John, thanks for hanging out with me and talking comics. Byron, thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. All right. So the basics of Ghostlight. Norton is pulled into the town of Sweetwater, New York, by a teenager named Tony Brooks. Tony is recently transplanted from the big city surroundings she's accustomed to and thrust into life upstate for family reasons where she encounters something in the woods. Let's start off with the surfer first and then get into kind of the other characters in the project. I've always thought of the the surfer as a a timeless character. So what captivates you about them as a character specifically? Well, I think, um, you know, first of all, like Marvel comics have always kind of resonated with me as far as like, even though these characters have like so much power, um, they always come across as like everyman characters. So, So to me, like, the Silver Surfer is almost the equivalent of like a a cosmic everyman, you know, um, mm-hmm. sacrifices his life to 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 become a uh, an, a herald for this planet eating cosmic being called Galactus, and I don't know, just a, it, it, the heroism and sacrifice is like part of the the character. The other thing too is that you know um, the when I was reading Silver Surfer, I was pretty re- reading uh, reprints of the uh, the the Stanley uh, Jabashima. Uh, run where he's trapped on earth and um he feels very like uh, there's an isolation and and, uh, and and melancholy connected to the character that i think kind of resonates on a very like dramatic level with most people in storytelling you know yeah absolutely well there's a, a new character in this ghostlight which pulled me in immediately as someone with a theater background so I remember the days as a technical director, it's one of those amazing feelings to be in a completely empty hall, being the last one out and the first one in, turning the ghost light on and off. It's always kind of signal closure and new beginnings for me. So tell me about where ghost light comes from and kind of what you wanted to infuse into that character. First of all, I am so excited that you understood that reference <laughs> without even having to. That's exactly where I got the idea from. So um so just to kind of give a, a little bit of background of where the project came from. So me and my friend, Angelique Roche, are working on a, um, I guess you got like a rough guide to Marvel's uh, Black characters from 1950s to current day. And it's called okay. My Superhero is Black. And it's a co-published piece from Simon & Schuster and, and Marvel. And it's due out soon. We're editing it now. Um, so I came across Albie Harper in my research. And it clicked with me that I remember reading this story when I was a kid, you know, and of course, the, the way I looked at like race and representation was very different then, <laughs> you know, I was just like, wow, sure, what a yeah. story, you know, but now as someone who studies representation in comics, it resonated with me that this character was created to have a conversation about civil rights and about race and about representation. In fact, the name of the, 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 uh, the chapter is called, and who shall mourn for him. So in some ways it's kind of like a black death matter story. And it's like Stanley trying to have a conversation about, you know, who matters in, you know, in, in our society, right? Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so so I, at the end of that story, Albie Harper sacrifices himself 
uh, to save the planet from the strangers' machinations. And the Silver Surfer is very moved by this, and he puts a cosmic flame on his grave. You know, and he says something like, "As long as the Earth shall live, this flame shall burn to mark you as a hero." You know, paraphrasing, but you know, it's really poignant and really powerful. And and over the years, that sacrifice has, has represented like Silver Surfer's commitment to the human race as a as a viable, um, well-meaning you know species, so to speak. And so. Uh, when I came across the story again to my research, I was like, it was, it was in the middle of like the, the George Floyd protests. Um, I think we had just lost Chadwick Boseman. Um, and also my sister had passed away like a few months before. And so, I don't know, I just felt like I wanted him to live. You know, I wanted him to be alive. And so I asked Marvel like, well, with this origin story to a certain degree, why couldn't he be resurrected? And they didn't see a reason why not. So they allowed me to pitch a story and they liked it. And, you know, before you know it, uh, I was talking to Tom Brevoort and he was giving me notes <laughs> on the, on this, you know, and, and then, yeah, move forward. So another thing that was happening, of course, during the pandemic, where there were a lot of closures of, of theaters, particularly in New York, small theaters. And yeah. as you stated, the ghost light um, kind of fed into the, the, uh, the folk tales around theaters that all theaters are haunted. <laughs> and the other thing is that it's a signal that, the show would go on, that the show would come back, you know, and that kind of thing. And so it just really moved me. And I thought that resurrecting a character like this and then, you know, kind of celebrating the idea of, um, you know, resurrection and rebirth through, and so that's why I chose the name Ghostlight. Okay. Um, well, without giving anything away, you know, what can you kind of tell us about Ghostlight's abilities? Um, Valentin's character design mock-ups kind of teased Cosmic related powers, which you talked about a little bit, and yep. and nan- nanite gas. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you know, there's this. Um, when you look at the original story, you know, there's you know, we, we assume a lot, you know, and I'm assuming I'm assuming that it was written, you know, uh, using the Marvel method, right? Because <laughs> you know, you know, so I'm sure like Stan was like, "Hey, John, I got this story idea. You know, here's a plot, <laughs> and then draw it accordingly." Because you know, it's riddled with these interesting plot holes, right? And um, like, for instance, you don't exactly know where it takes place. You know, I don't know if people notice that, but it's like, you know, they're rushing all around and we don't, we have no markers as far as like where this place is, you know, which I thought was really interesting. So it doesn't take place in New York, it seems, you know, it could be upstate New York, could be somewhere else. So, you know, I just kind of started playing around with that. And then the other thing was, um, you know, I wanted to take elements of, uh, the original story and, and figure out like how to, to kind of like signal back to things that are happening now, you know, um, his power set is, is really based off of a combination of like technologies that he encountered with the bomb that he, uh, that he, um, diffused in the original story. And also with, um, these, the, the flame from his grave being like a power source, you know, which is a, essentially like a renewable energy source, it seems, right? I mean, we don't know the nature of cosmic energy, but it seems like a little bit goes a long way. <laughs> so, yeah. so anyway, so uh, yeah, so it's it's almost like uh, when I was thinking about his creation, I was like, it's almost like Reese's Pieces. You take like peanut butter and, and chocolate <laughs> and, and mix them up and make something really awesome. So I was like, okay. So, so, so he does have uh, cosmic abilities, you know, very durable, super strength, you know, energy projection, you know, your kind of standard pop cosmic powers and stuff. But one of the things I found really interesting about it, I, I wanted to kind of like dial into his background. I mean, if you read the issue, you see that 
he's a, a quote unquote marble scientist, you know, mm-hmm. which yeah. means, of course, you know, that scientist is like an overarching like uh, category. So it's like, like, like Hank Pym is, I can, you know, I'm entomologist, but I'm also a physicist. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Why would you do all And I can things? also make AI, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, that's how they design scientists. Like, oh, we need a science dude. And so they needed someone that actually had essentially like, he's a physicist who also seems to know electrical, uh, you know, um, engineering and also mechanical engineering. And I would have to say like some molecular, uh, I'm like a molecular scientist and also maybe material scientist. You know, I'm just kind of looking at what to do what he did. He had to have like multiple PhDs, like Mr. <laughs> Terrific. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, so I wanted to kind of dial into the fact, you know, just this guy had a knowledge of different types of systems, right? And, you know, as you probably know, like most issues, you know, on our planet are systemic issues. You know, and I, f- I want to say like the superhero model is like, you know, beat Dr. Doom and we solve a problem kind of thing, you know. And it's a very Western notion about like how problem solving and how, you know, good versus evil. It's not necessarily like one big bad guy, but it's it's a system of issues. Right. Mm-hmm. So I was like, what if we had a character that could actually like. Uh, be a connector between different types of systems. Okay. So if anything, he's a systemopath, you know, and so he's negotiating with systems at a faster than light rate, you know, and I wanted to actually, um, I was kind of inspired by the character, uh, oh, what is his fold? He can teleport. Manifold, I think his name is. Yeah, where Manifold actually doesn't just teleport, he actually has a conversation with the space itself. You can actually mm-hmm. talk to the universe, you know, which is wild. And so I kind of so so the, so the power set is really inspired by that kind of power set that already exists in the Marvel universe, where he speaks okay. to systems. Yeah, I know it's kind of long with it, but you know, this, I put I wanted to put a lot of thought into you know that kind of thing. I didn't want him to like sync or like cipher where he's just speaking to shit machines, you know. So yeah, yeah. So how does Tony Brooks kind of fit into everything? You know, I I saw that you you named her after Tony Morrison. That's right. uh, and I'm kind of curious about how she and Norrin kind of are designed to play off of each other specifically. Um, well, you know, it's, it's probably more of her playing off with Al, you know what I'm saying? Okay. Uh, a little bit more. Um, the way that Al is situated in Silver Surfer's mythology, to me, look, I'm just doing some research around it. It seemed like, you know, he always was more of a symbolic character. Like he was... He was designed. He was designed to die, actually, unfortunately. But you know, that he's set up to that his death would actually be the crux of the story. And then since then, you know, we've seen like um, him pop up in flashbacks and stuff like that. There's actually even like a you know a scene where a, a, a series where like the, the Silver Surfer gives up on humanity and he lets the flame die and stuff like that. We we ignored that one. <laughs> so it's like you know, um, but yeah, I think. Um, when when Tony comes into con- con- contact with uh, you know with with the Silver Surfer, we kind of like throw some I kind of like throw some a red herring into this into the space a little bit where you know Tony is actually uh, she has some latent psychic abilities you know and and she's seeing things uh, that might be happening uh, in, in in the future and so those futures are kind of like a, a triumvirate of like Tony, Norin, and uh, and Al and, and so. You know, she starts to kind of see a picture of, of what that what that future could look like. So I want to say, like, it's 
and she's basically like extremely uh, surprised that the Silver Surfer exists and <laughs> and that there's this uh, this being that's connected to her family in some way. You know. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, is is the miniseries something with you know broader implications for the Marvel universe, or is it kind of designed to have its own little pocket at, at least for now? You know, it's designed to have its own pocket, but I do leave like um, things that could actually connect to the to the to the larger uh, Marvel universe uh, later. You know, okay. Um, I have heard some rumblings that you know folk like the character, so maybe we'll see him pop up more. Um, this is a very strange opportunity to have. I mean, you probably know quite a bit about the history of the of the company, so it's like you don't see a lot of miniseries based off of like resurrected characters like this it's a very um right it's a it's a it's a it's it's an it's strange <laughs> it really doesn't happen i mean i mean to get a minute most of the characters are, are established um the way that this character is being introduced it reminds me of the first time that uh, monica rambo is, is is introduced where like she's introduced in a, in a spider-man special right essentially that was you know i, I think it was um John Romita Jr. and Sr., I think, worked on the art. So it looks like a classic Spider-Man story, right? And, you know, it's a Spider-Man story, but really it's a Monica Rambeau story, you know? And they kind of use the more established character, kind of like <clears throat> set out uh, and, and introduced this new character. That's how it was proposed that we do this, you know what I'm saying? So, like, so Silver Surfer is, like, the lead character, but there's also, like, there's implications of him introducing... Um, this brand new character into the Marvel universe, which is super exciting. So it just doesn't happen a lot, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. 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 And especially with a character that's been like literally dead for 50, almost 60 years. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, as I understand it and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the first time the server has been in the hands of a completely black creative team. Is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because, um, Except for our, our colorist, uh, Matt Miller, I mean, uh, who's had a lot of experience like working with characters of color, actually, because I want to say he worked on Ironheart and a few other characters. Yeah, you have a um, a black writer, black artist, and black cover artist, you know, um, and which is, you know, I don't know if it, it was, uh, I guess it was, if it was supposed to be that way, you know, <laughs> it's like, okay. it makes sense though. I mean, the characters, it's an African American character. And, uh, right. you know, so it, I think that. Uh, Marvel has been focusing a lot on not only representation and diversity, but also, uh, you know, cre- creating an opportunity for people who are in that demographic to tell their own stories. You know, and if you look at something like Marvel's Voices, for instance, that Angelique Rocher is connected to, um, that's been kind of like the credo. You know, it's like, okay, well, if you're going to have a character that's, you know, Indian and queer, then perhaps let's try to find someone who, who writes in that space and who's of that community, you know? So I think that's kind of like what's been happening a lot, you know? And I appreciate that. I applaud that too. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was sensing some synchronicity with a lot of it, you know, it's released during black history month. Yeah. You, know, you and you and I are kind of a similar age, likely grew up reading many of the same things. Yep. So, you know, that representation, especially in comics has, has changed quite a bit. And, you know, Marvel's press release calls ghost light and you just kind of, alluded to it this character 54 years in the making yeah so what does working on this miniseries and developing this character mean to you you know um i've been trying not to think of it too much because i figure like if i if i sit and think about it too much i'll geek out so <laughs> <laughs> but it's a huge honor i mean because not only is uh you know february 1st like the beginning of black history month but i think is 
memory serves, it's like the beginning of like the sit-ins during like the, the civil rights era, you know, some of the first sit-ins happening mm-hmm. February 1st. So um, the fact that you have a character um, that I'm allowed to give a, a, a backstory to, because, you know, a lot of those characters that were created, and it's not just Black characters, just characters in general, were created for a particular purpose, and then they maybe die or go away and they never come back. And they really don't have a lot of fleshing out, you know? And so what what they allowed me to do was actually give this character a backstory, give him um, a life, you know? Um, my colleague, Jordan Ifueko, uh, who writes, uh, she's, she's writing Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur right now, but also writes, you know, children, uh, middle grade, uh, or maybe a little bit older, like fiction. She's, she's a... Uh, um, Nigerian American, and uh, she said this thing about like one of the reasons why why black characters are killed off is because then you have if you don't then you have to deal with the fact that they are human and you have to think a lot about who they are as characters outside of the symbolic nature of what they were created for you know and it's it's just very um, I don't know it just really moved me because that's how I think about it like so just uh, just giving this character like his humanity is just such a radical, beautiful thing. So it's like, even if people, you know, don't like it or think the character's terrible, we had a space where Marvel allowed us to actually like give a character that was created for a particular reason, um, uh, just a new lease on life in the Marvel universe. It's exciting. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. And your journey into comics seems a little bit different than, than most of the people I talked to. Yeah. I read I read your mom was the one that introduced you to you know science fiction and horror. Um, yeah. and and I don't hear that very much. You know, I hear lots of grandpas, lots of dad, but like very few mom. So was that a, a gradual process of exposure, just like being around the stuff she was reading, or did she just put something in front of you and say, Read this, honey? You know, it's a little bit of both, man. I mean, so um yeah, it's funny that you said it, because I actually do know a lot of folk who had whose moms are really into this stuff, but you know. Maybe not a not maybe like a ton, but you're right. Mostly it's like, you know, it's you know, men reading this stuff. Um, my mom was uh she was a literature major at Alcorn State University, and so she had a lot of books around, you know. So I started reading at an early age and uh, you know, I grew up in a in a very agrarian uh space in Mississippi. I'm from Mississippi originally. Okay. And um, you know, she was a single mom and she had this kid who was like had a voracious appetite for learning. She wanted to feed it. And so, um, you know, and she was also like an avid reader. Like I'm talking like, you know, really into like murder mysteries and adventure stories and science fiction and horror. And she started reading Edgar Allan Poe super early. I started reading Edgar Allan Poe super early, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So she really kind of like transferred that love of <clears throat> great storytelling to me and about titillating stories, you know? Yeah. And so I really started reading uh, folk tales and, and, mythology super early so you know greek mythology norse mythology egyptian mythology i was really into all that stuff and um, i think what she saw she saw that and she started getting me comics that related to it so you know like i think one of the first things she got me was the mighty thor you know you know and i saw like the connection between you know the mighty thor and the norse mythology and i said oh man they actually took this and made it to a comic book wow (coughs) excuse me so um you know, little did she know that she started an obsession <laughs> and I guess a career. Cause like at this particular point, even though I like, you know, I'm a college professor, like, but I do like pretty much all I do is work with different aspects of publishing comics and, and, and talking about comics as a medium. So yeah, she's, I have to think. And so still to this day, we talk a lot about horror movies and 
Oh, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, we actually still like most of our conversations. Like, hey, did you see this movie? And she re- makes recommendations, and you know, it's it's pretty cool. <laughs> that, that's amazing. My mom's yes. recommendations look way different than. So. Yeah, my my mom was like, hey, you need to see Men of Wrath. Uh, you know, by you know, it's a Jason Statham movie, and I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> okay, he was right. It was pretty cool. <laughs> well, is there anything in Ghostlight that's uh, a tribute to her? You know. Um, I've, not directly, uh, not directly. I think the idea of of generational uh, connections, I think, is a really big part of it. Um, there are a lot of Easter eggs that are very much about, um, you know, personal in there. It's, it's a super Afrofuturist story. I mean, people yeah. probably saw that I do a lot of work in Afrofuturism. Yep. This is straight, like, very, very, like, connected to that particular cultural space. Um, there are some little things, like for instance, you know, uh, not to give too much away, but there's a scene, like there's a there's a camp uh, that's in the story. The story takes place in late summer, and uh, um, so I, I grew up in Florida, Mississippi, and so Camp Flora is like the name of the of the camp. That stuff like that, where it's like just little like nods and winks to my own shout outs to people here or there and things that I'm into. Um, there are some moments where like. Uh, you can definitely see like my connection to my mom pop up though. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, it's so not directly, but there's, there's a sense of like, you know, uh, camaraderie and family and connection in the story is pretty evident. So. Okay. Well, touching on after futurism, cause that's something I wanted to ask about, you know, it's a, a personal research interest for you. I got a chance to read your interview piece um, for the Matt remixing the future. Oh, and yeah. you meant, yeah, you mentioned the importance uh, to you of reclaiming that connection between Afrofuturism and comics. And mm-hmm. it got me thinking, you know, DC's milestone imprint broke the glass ceiling in the 90s, paving the way for this whole new age of representation in the medium. Now, 2023, and they're revisiting it with the Milestone Initiative and its new generation of creatives. Of course, you have the Black Panther franchise, you know, is putting that concept front and center on screens worldwide. But why do you think it took so long if comics are such a, a good vehicle for Afrofuturism to, to thrive in a way? You know, Man, why now? That's, that's a great that's a great question. Cause that's something I was always trying to figure out. Um, because if you look at the original essay by Mark Derry, who by the way is a white scholar who coined the term Afrofuturism. Some people don't realize that, but he was um looking at uh, uh production by black folk who are, who are intersecting with technology. And we're talking about early 90s when, it, when, it, when the term was first coined, in like 1993 or 94, something like that. And so what he was doing was looking at like uh, these, these cultural products like science fiction, like music by black people, but also the comics, right? And so he saw like connections between what he was thinking of as what he called Afrofuturism. And at the time, like you said, Milestone Media was there. Um, I think it took a while for Afrofuturism to kind of get its toehold too, because I think what what happened was the the technology wasn't as as advanced as our imaginations at the time. You know, that's one of the things. You know, because if you look at like something like Cyberpunk, for instance, you know, the the lingo and the, the amount of storage and, and and processing capacity has like we're like right now we're in the Cyberpunk space. You know, to a certain degree, right? As far as like you know, so it was their imaginations weren't big enough for like what we, I mean, the technology wasn't big enough. And I think it took a while for, uh, first of all, for, for Afrofuturism to kind of circle back around. Now, one thing I always thought was interesting is that if you look at like black, 
cultural movements or like uh, political movements, they always kind of circle back, right? So if you look at like, so for instance, the Harlem Renaissance, you know, you had the, you had the new Negro movement, right? It's about like rethinking like how Black Americans were um, were moving through the space, right? And then of course later on, you have the Black Arts movement, which is connected to the Black Power movement. So I figured that the movement for Black Lives and other types of movements uh, around people of color in our, in our country were like kind of like the undergirding political aspect, and it's, it's Black speculative arts movement, as we call it, was the the artistic kind of like pairing, right? So I always see like if there's a political movement, there's an artistic movement at the same time, right? Mm-hmm, sure. um, but I think that uh, for the comics piece, go comics have always been looked down upon in general. And the other thing too, and not not to oversimplify this, but you know, African American people can be super conservative <laughs> when it comes to like you know the arts and stuff like that. So for instance. You know, my mom was very like, throw those comics out, you know, and I think, you know, it, it was about like performance of a particular type of societal issues or societal norms. So you could be an artist, you could be a fine artist to be in museums, but draw a comic book. No, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Okay. So um, the other thing we're going up against is like science fiction was looked up as being looked at as not being literature at the time either. You know, that's the other thing, you know, so um so all these different factors, I think, kind of like stopped comics from becoming front and center in the, in the American in African-American consciousness. Um, the other thing that jumped off, too, if you look at, like, say, like the creation of Afrofuturism as an idea in the 90s, you notice that there's also that's when you see a lot of independent black comics popping up, too. You know, so I think that's really interesting. So anyway, I think it's taken so long because you had to have like the community that was there to support it. If you think about it, this new resurgence of Afrofuturism really starts in like the mid 2000s, you know, mm-hmm. but I, I actually look at the, the election of Barack Obama as president as a flashpoint, because okay. if you think about it, you really only saw like, you know, black presidents in science fiction movies, <laughs> usually, and usually played by Morgan Freeman. And so it's like, you know, um, yeah. you know, someone like that. And I think what it was, it took us away. You have this nerdy black president who's in the comics and sci-fi, you know, that that has now reified this idea of a black future, you know. That's why some people thought it was a post-black moment or whatever, which was untrue, obviously. But um the other thing, of course, was you could be the like coming up, you were like the, the nerd, you like you could be like the sole like black nerd who's into like, you know, bad brains and reading Silver Surfer, right? But now you have a community because of the internet and because of, you know, the connectivity of um of the World Wide Web, you can actually have a, a global community. And the other thing that happens is access to the means of production, right? I mean, you're you're, you're making a podcast out of your house right now, <laughs> right? So it's like you know um, that actually that idea of being connected through technology is something that was really so you know so now people who couldn't afford Photoshop, couldn't afford Illustrator, or couldn't afford, like think software now could you know get subscribed to it so. You know, I think those things actually kind of really help lift up the um, the, uh, the the comics community. And the final thing, of course, and people don't really think about this a lot, but the final thing I think is printing on demand technology. Okay. Yep. You didn't have you don't have to take your comic to like Marvel DC or some other place, right? You can actually just make it. And so I think that so now you actually had uh, all these different factors in place that you know we can't, you can't ignore the output of Black comics creators now. So. Babe, I'm sorry. I teach I teach several classes. I no, think, no. I think a lot about this stuff. <laughs> so, no, no. I, I mean, yeah. I ask because I'm very curious about it. I mean, yeah. you know, 
given given your background and and this being a, a story about the Silver Surfer, we're facing you know front and center. Why yeah. did why did the Surfer lend itself specifically to what what appealed to you? You know, given your background with Afrofuturism, and, you know, you know, it's interesting because I will say that. Um, because of the dearth of representation of black folk in speculative fiction up until now, we've actually had to uh, project blackness on the characters. Okay. Does that make sense? You know? Yeah. Oh, so for sure. Yeah. 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 So, you, so you'd be like, okay, well, the Hulk's black, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Like, for instance, you know, in, in the MCU, uh, in the movie, when, when, uh, when Mark Ruffalo, you know, uh, Bruce Banner tells Captain America, so you know, you know how, uh, you know how I control this is like you know I'm always angry that whole piece I'm totally jacking it up it's a great scene it's like I'm angry all the time essentially yeah. and so many black people resonated with that you know because of being like unseen and being enraged constantly by what you know different types of uh, oppressive things that have happened to people of color in our country for sure and then also summarily erased not only like these bad things happen but then historically they try to like get rid of those those things and sweep them under the rug kind of thing right so to to us like you know, a lot of us think of the Hulk as a black character because usually you go and talk to a lot of African American men who are comics fans. The Hulk is a big, like I was a huge Hulk fan, <laughs> you know. Um, and I think the same thing. I think that there's a certain type of blackness that's that's projected onto the Silver Surfer. Because you talk to a lot of black collectors, particularly from our age, like you know, you know, middle, middle age. Yeah. Um, the Silver Surfer is a is there's a lot of black men who love the Silver Surfer. You know, okay. and I think it's because they're projecting. They're looking at his his uh, his plight. I mean, he essentially is kind of like sells himself into kind of a slavery, you know, to a certain degree. And then he um, is punished for being a righteous person and, and actually isolated. And he's kind of like uh, trying to find his way on the planet that he's now imprisoned. He's a he's a prisoner, you know. So mm -hmm. so yeah, and so I think that those connections are something that really resonate with African American readers, you know. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's what I would say. So it's a projected blackness, and so now you have a character who, who like a mirror or a receptacle of some kind, mm -hmm. is being projected upon with a character who's actually black, right? Who literally sacrificed his life, you know, to save the planet. <laughs> so it's like, wow, what a what a juxtaposition there. And um, you know, in previous issues of the Silver Surfer, we've seen uh, the Silver Surfer visiting Al's grave in an annual fashion, like he actually is. That was part of the mythology that he would actually come back and visit the grave. And actually, actually there's a there's a Spider-Man team up that he did where he's intercepted on his way back to his annual visit to, to Al's grave, and there's an adventure that happens with Spider-Man. And I forgot, I think it was in the ninety in the like late nineties. Um, also, too, by the way, and this is something I hope that we get a chance because I'm still formulating um, uh, the plot, you know, for the last issue. You know, so I just turned in the plot for the last issue. There is a Silver Surfer prose collection where the flame from Al's grave is stolen, actually. And the Silver Surfer has to go and get it and replace it and then protect it in some way. So I thought that was really cool that people were thinking about that flame. You know what I'm saying? Oh, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, I thought that was really awesome. So anyway, so, th so those are, I kind of went off the, yeah, I'm, I'm a big nerd. I'm sorry. So I'm going to stop. It's all good. I mean, I'm, I'm interested. That's, that's super fascinating. I mean, that's that's the kind of thing that, especially with the surfer, I hadn't thought about it particularly, but it makes so much sense. Especially, oh, yeah. I mean, given that time frame and and lack of representation, and then looking and seeing a character that quite literally is a mirror. That's right. Um, 
Yeah, he's almost like a mannequin or like a he, he's he's like a um a cipher that you can actually project yourself onto. And I think people, you know, people see him like that. It's interesting. I mean, not to go off the off the track too much, but when I was researching the character, because like I said, I'm writing about the character in this book too, right? So one of the things that I was doing and something we've been doing for the book is we've been put we've been looking at the letters pages, you know. And so Julie, like, you know, back in the day when someone would when a character would appear or like when it was a you know, particular thing happening. Maybe three issues later is when the, the letters for that issue would pop up. So we were kind of digging through the archives. So, you know, of course, you, they can't publish all the letters, but it seems like for the most part, there was a lot of positive response to the character. But there were two letters that stuck out. And one was a, a letter from a Black man whose name was actually John Stewart, I think the third, which was hilarious to me. His name is John Stewart. Yeah. <laughs> and he said that it, it touched him on a very emotional level, we said, I'm not a Civil Surfer fan, you know, things like that. I just picked it up because of the cover and loved it. And he had no idea what it was about. And the fact that they actually created a character who was so noble and beautiful, because if you look at the construction of that character, you know, through physiognomy, what they call physiognomy, you know, in comics, and this is something that pops up in Tolkien's work, you know, and stuff like that, is that if, you, if an evil character looks ugly, you know what I'm saying? Yep. yep. You know, and a, a so, so a lot of it is like caricature, right? And so John Basim is a master of this, right? And so if you look at like a character like Albie Harper, he kind of looks like a Luke Cage, <laughs> but like he's like a young Robbie Robertson. He's got the pipe and stuff like that, you know? He's made, he, they wanted him to look heroic and to look noble and beautiful. You know, he's designed to be a, a hero, you know? And, um, you know, this man who read this book was just so moved. He said he was moved to tears by, by the character. But then there was another letter from another, uh, you know, gentleman who was a white uh, uh, reader who did who took offense to the fact that they had the audacity to juxtapose this plight of like uh, black people with the Silver Surfer. If you read the, if you read the issue, um, they they literally juxtapose the Silver Surfer with the civil rights struggle, and he didn't like it. You know, he did not like it, and he and then. You know, Stan Lee's response was like, go kick rocks. <laughs> we don't care. This is how yeah. we feel about it. And we think this is, is important. And we're not just making entertainment. We're making statements about the society that we live in. And I was like, wow. You know, so I was, it was, it was a beautiful moment for me to find that connected to that story. And so that's actually one of the reasons why in my pitch, um, I talked about the, why this character was so important. The other thing that was really interesting is that he was like, Silas was like first like friend on Planet outside of like this Fantastic Four, or whatever, and he was the first uh, being to ride on a surfboard of the Silver Surfer besides him. So I okay. thought that was really cool too. <laughs> you know, nice. Well, at, at all this intersection of of so many different things, you know, you've got talking about race, culture, all these different things that are important to you. You know, what made comic books your preferred medium? You know, that's a great question too. I think you know, first of all, it's like. I have this. I have this. Uh, this theory that whatever you're into when you're like ten to twelve, that's your thing for life. <laughs> like that's. I think it because it's like you're in this space where like you're coming out of like being a kid, moving into like the preteen era, and so you're still like you're still maybe like a little bit believing in Santa Claus a little bit, and you know what I'm saying. And and so yeah. so the things that you watch, like for instance, I don't know about you, but I was a massive fan of the, of the Night Stalker. You know, the uh, Carl Kolchak, the Night Stalker, and I just got a chance to write a short story for, for a cold check collection. And I was like, just on 10, I was like, Oh my God. That's <laughs> you know, so, yeah. yeah. It's really cool. And so I was like, 
you know, I think that that's one of the things. Like, it's something that I was into at an early age. I had a sense of community around it. And it just, this is a great medium to tell a story in, you know. And um, I think later on, I like the fact that it's kind of a rebel medium. You know, even with the, the corporate structure, like the big two, you know, they do some pretty wild things, you know, say, you know, as the comics are really surreal and it can be very political and beautiful. Um, they're, they're titillating, you know, and uh, you have these stylistic conventions and they kind of like, it's like someone, it's like look, looking into someone's head. Like, look, they're so surreal. It's like watching a dream happen in front of you, you know, and the affordances of comics, you know, one thing I talk about my students is like every aspect of a comic page can tell a story, right? From the sound, of, from the style of the sound effects to the, to the very lines that you use, the spaces between the panels, the color, color is color in a comic now is like the soundtrack to a comic. Honestly, if you think about it for a movie, I mean, yeah, and, and also like the gutter space, even like the the, the the doggone like lines around the panels can be used to tell part of the story to give you a, an emotive affect. You know, I don't know other, any other medium that does that. And the other thing is that anybody can make a comic book. Anybody. So people are like, oh, I can't draw, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, no, no. It's not about drawing. It's about being able to tell a sequential visual story. So you can do stick figures. <laughs> you can actually be like the Italians and do fumetti and do it from like photos, you know? Mm -hmm. And then you can, if you can take it to like a copy shop, guess what? You just published your first comic. So very, so like, so that's what I love about it. You don't have to like buy a lot of equipment and become a filmmaker. <laughs> you know, you can actually just scribble down your story. Uh, take it to a copy shop and put some staples on the corner. That's how I made my first comics when I was a okay. kid. I would, I would uh, not the copy shop thing, but I would, I would draw stories and put staples on the corners and, you know, I had a comic book. <laughs> yeah. Well, kind of as a, as a trained anthropologist myself, I'm, I'm a constant student of, of material cultures, right? There you, go. Yeah. you know, there's graphic representations that people leave behind. You know, you're a, a visual theorist. You, you teach this stuff. To people so kind of what touchstones were you looking for when you're establishing the visuals of the book specifically with ghost light and the silver surfer because mm. you know one has a a very rich visual history to draw from and the other's fresh ground that's right that's well that's a great question um because i feel like the silver surfer is one of the best design characters because of the fact he's so simple you know by the time simple is best right um when I first, because actually I did it when I when I sent in my very long pitch to Marvel, <laughs> too long actually. I actually had designs uh, for the for the character that were based off of some things from the original uh, Silver Surfer story. Valentine's visual language is so controlled and beautiful. He has this really um, uh, he has an essential line. You know what I'm saying? If you look at his work, it's it's very much, you can see a lot of like someone like a John Paul Leon or like um, some other uh, influences there. A Sean Martin, bro, you know, that kind of control over, over like the line. The other thing that he's really good is, you know, his storytelling reminds me of like a Silver Age kind of storytelling. It's very cinematic, you know, it's a lot of restraint, you know. So I was thinking about that when he designed the character. So what he did is he actually took the character design that I came up with and he designed around a native space of the character, which I so if you look at like the two images juxtaposed, you say, oh, what he did is he actually, you can still see evidence of what I was trying to do um, in the character. So one of the main tenets of Afrofuturism is uh, the idea of Sankofa. 
And Sankofa is a uh, a Khan term, you know, West African term, uh, that literally means go back and get it. This idea of not losing sight of your past and your history, you know. So the idea of so so it's symbolized by uh, mostly by a bird reaching back over its shoulders to to pull this egg out of the past into the future. So it's about like taking the history and presenting it to the to the to future generations. So if you look at like the ghost lights design, first of all, it's, you know, he's black, uh, green and, and gold, which is like, you know, elements of African Afrocentricity, that kind of piece. Right. The other thing is that you'll see like this kind of gold uh, thing on his neck. This, you know, um, it almost looks like a hand or some kind of thing that's reaching down. And uh, there's this idea of speaking things into existence that we wanted to get across from that. And then the main symbol on his chest looks like an egg, you know, or like some type of, it's a circular kind of like oval space. It's kind of nondescript, but it's meant to symbolically be that Sankofa egg, you know, that he is the, uh, he is the, the, the idea of Sankofa made flesh to a certain degree. Because literally we're going back into history and pulling them back and presenting them differently now, you know. So those are some of the, you know, kind of icon, iconographic aspects to his, uh, to his suit, um, you know, and, and uh, he took like my really cumbersome design <laughs> and just made it so clean and so like you know very uh, uh I don't know it's a classic design it feels like it could have been designed by you know back in the day you know it has that kind of like uh it's a throwback you know the entire story you know we're trying to create like a sense of nostalgia for the silver age and and that kind of thing too it's very it deals with this dealing to a certain degree with modern ideas but um we wanted a clean, like fast-paced uh, representation of stuff that we used to like to read when we were kids. You know that kind of thing. It's a lot of fun. You know, uh, it's very character-driven. You know, and uh, I love the fact that they let me use like, you know, these kind of like. Um, I mean, Civil Surf is a main character, but you know, characters like the Stranger and things like that. You know, uh, are evident in the story too. A love of just the rich like mythology that that you know the bullpen came up with back in the day. It's a lot of great ideas, man. It's like, you know, they were just like, hey, let's let's go for it, you know? <laughs> so, so we wanted to, we wanted to capture that spirit too. Valentine is such a great collaborator too, by the way. Like he'll take my little my terrible scripts and <laughs> and translate them into like these these motion pictures, man. I mean, just I feel like um very honored to be working with them. And uh, you know, I'm hoping that the the, the language that I create like are worthy of him and Tarn's work, like Tarn Clark is just a genius with color design, man. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, so I'm just, and then of course we have like the variant covers that they're doing and stuff where I had no hand in. I was just, wow. I had no idea that they would get someone like, you know, uh, Gabriel Delodo, for instance, someone like that to do a cover. Like, wow. <laughs> so it's, it's just been, uh, I don't know, a roller coaster, but it's like really a lot of fun uh, to see these characters come to life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some of your other co- work in comics. Um, Megascope yeah. is a line of graphic novels that's curated by you for Abrams Books, dedicated to showcasing speculative and nonfiction works by and about people of color. So how did that come about, and what can we expect from Megascope in 2023? Oh, man, so much. <laughs> okay. So uh, as you stated in the intro, um, me and my friend Damian Duffy adapted a couple of Octavia Butler's works uh, into graphic novels right now you know there's a kindred tv show on hulu right now on fx you know so that's based off of the original story by octavia butler kindred um that was an unexpected hit for abrams uh and 
you know, before then they had really not heard of her work that much. And this is kind of like in the middle of like this growing interest in Afrofuturism. So we kind of caught the zeitgeist to a certain degree. Okay. And a lot of interest uh, in her work has kind of resurfaced, you know. Uh, and because of the, the success of that, you know, and that in the parable of the solar book, um, what you said, like, garnered us a Hugo Award, which is pretty amazing. I'm still like, what? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I was able to pitch this idea. I was like, I was talking to the publisher, Andrew Smith, at a American Library Association conference. And I was like, hey, you know, there are other there are other people that we could look at. Octavia Butler's fantastic. She's a legend. You know? But there are a bunch of folk of color who work in science fiction. And I see that there's an audience for this, you know, and there's so much like sci-fi and fantasy out there. You know, why not, you know, do some other work? And he was like, well, just let us know who else you would want to work with. We'll see if we're going to acquire the, the rights and do adaptations and stuff. And I was like, well, yeah, but I was also thinking about original content too. He said, oh, well, that sounds like an imprint. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, yes. <laughs> and so what ends up happening is I wrote up a good, <laughs> I wrote up a, a two-page like, per, per, you know, pitch about like what Megascope could be. I got the name of the the um, the imprint from a, a W.E.B. Du Bois science fiction story called The Princess Steel. And the Megascope is, and the story is, is and this is written in 1909, like 20 years before the term science fiction is actually even coined. Um, and it's a, it's a device that can actually look through time and space into different dimensions. And I was like, oh, well, that sounds like a great name for, for imprint. So, yeah, and they agreed. You know? And, uh, yeah, and then they were like, well, what kind of books would you publish? And so I sent them, like, I think 15 or so titles, you know, and they greenlit it. And wow. so then, so now we have eight books out since the creation. So, you know, other thing, too, by the way, Byron, don't, don't. Try to launch an imprint in the middle of a global pandemic. Yeah, <laughs> <It's cool>. yeah. <laughs> you know, I feel. But we have been making some new ground. So we just released the Keeper, uh, which is Tanana Redu and Stephen Barnes' first graphic novel together. Uh, you know, which is kind of like a coming of age story set in like modern day Detroit. Uh, it just got nominated for uh, best or outstanding literary work for the NAACP Image Award. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> And then uh, our new book that we just put out is Queenie. Uh, the other thing is like we do crime fiction. I'm a big, my mom was a big crime buff and I'm a big crime buff. <laughs> so we do crime books too. We do you know, uh, crime fiction. And so it's about uh, the former, like I used to call it the godmother of Harlem. Like she basically during, during the uh, big depression era and stuff ran the numbers rackets, you know, there. And she actually was Bumpy Johnson's uh, mentor. And she went up against like, you know, Dutch Schultz and like Lucky Luciano and people like that won actually <laughs> and uh, had, a, had an iron grip on like, you know, crime in Harlem. It was amazing. So, yeah, we actually uh, picked this book up from a, from a French publisher and uh, brought it to the, to the States. And that, it's a great book, you know. And uh, we are also doing an Afrofuturist version of the Count of Monte Cristo, uh, which I drops saw that. too. Yeah, it's called The Last Count of Monte Cristo. And it's like set about 180 years after the polar ice caps melt. So it's kind of climate fiction, you know? Okay. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a lot of people forgot, forget that Alexander Dumas was a black man. And so, mm-hmm. you know, his father was, uh, you know, a general. And, and I worked with Napoleon and called the Black Count, you know? And so he's kind of like inspiration for the Count of Monte Cristo anyway, right? Um, another book we're getting ready to do, I'm working on with... Um, Nalo Hopkinson and the great Steve Bissett, you know, who co-created Constantine. <laughs> um, so uh, it's called, it's a Zora Neale Hurston as 
paranormal investigator story. Uh, it's pretty cool. It's called uh, Night Comes Walking. You probably like, she's probably one of your heroes, right? Being an anthropologist. So yeah, mm-hmm. so she's. But people don't realize she was also like trained as a conjure woman. She was a hoodooist as well, and um, also had visions. She actually had future visions, like you know. So we kind of really got to kind of leaned into the supernatural aspects of you know some of the stuff that she might have been up to. You know, um, yeah, we, we actually do have a, a book about Emmett Till. It's in process right now, written by uh, Christopher D. Benson, who wrote the definitive book with Mimi Till Mobley on the subject of Emmett Till's death. The artist on it is Eric Battle. It's a beautiful book. Sean Marlborough is working on a, a, his first graphic novel that he's written uh, as, as well. It's called The Heavy. Uh, we have a book with uh, Daniel Jose Older called Death's Day. That's uh, it's really kind of, it's almost like, <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. It's like this urban fantasy uh, buddy cop story about saving the world. It's just really wild. Chuck Collins is the artist on that. So yeah, we and also we're working on a book, uh, N.K. Jemison adaptation uh, with Ashley Woods and Kanika Brooks, Red Dirt Witch, which is just phenomenal. So we have a lot of stuff in the kitty. We're stacked up till 2027, something like that. So we're just okay. trying to get the books out right now. So if anybody's listening and they want a blueprint for who they should be working with um, as an imprint coordinator, um, I think John just laid it out because I don't know how you remembered all those. That was incredible. <laughs> well, it's just they're like they're like my friends, you know. Yeah. So like some of these books are on were on the original, you know, listing of books I wanted to do. In fact, like like the Eightfold Path book, which is like Stephen Barnes and Char- the the great Charles Johnson on a book together. That uh, how do I just explain it? It's like uh, the Canterbury Tales meets like the Twilight Zone and with an EC Comics like aesthetic, but it, it's talking about you know, the path to enlightenment. It's it's, a, it's almost like a, a Buddhist handbook, but with like scary stories, like on a book. Yeah, it's so crazy. And and the artist on it is primarily like, he's a fine artist who also does a lot of zines and stuff. So it, so the art style is wild. And uh, it's called The Eightfold Path. You know? Very odd books. I wanted to see, you know, what my limitations were as a curator. Like, can I do something that esoteric and strange? Will you let me do that? <laughs> and, or will you, and then also have a book about the Tulsa Race Massacre too. So something's really like a history book, you know, that's so it's, yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. As a former resident of Tulsa, I'm glad these stories are being told. Oh um, man. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. I don't know how you have time to do everything you're doing. Um, I don't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, (laughs) you've got like the, uh, your co-founder of the Schumberg Center's Black Comic Book Festival in Harlem. It's coming up in April. And I I think congrats on like, that's 10 year milestone, right? Last year? Well, now it's 11. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be virtual again, unfortunately, because they they don't, they are uh, afraid of the COVID numbers. You know what I'm saying? I still can't, because, you know, if you've been, probably been to the Schomburg, it's, uh, it's like, um, it's not it's not a it's not a convention space <laughs> right so right you know with that many uh, with that many people i mean we bring in like 12 to 15,000 people over a two day period you know that's wow. crazy that's like tcaf that's like toronto comic arts festival narrative you know, which is a way bigger space in toronto you know so yeah. all right well where can people find you online well uh, you can start with my website johnjenningsstudio.com is a good place to start. Um, and all my handles are there if you just go into the contact me space. But I have, I'm on Instagram, uh, John Jennings Art, and I'm also on Facebook and stuff like that. So you can find me. And also, you know, I work for the state of California. So you can always reach out through, you know, the, the department. You know, so 
All right. Well, my last question is all about the hustle. I spent nearly three decades either as a professional artist or working with artists and creatives to support them in various roles. It's a nonstop hustle. Yeah. Um, it's also now my custom to end my interviews asking guests for their piece of advice for the aspiring comics creator or young person thinking about a career in the medium who might be tuning in. So what do you have for them? Well, honestly, um, I would say don't stop. You know what I'm saying? Uh, don't stop because I want to say that because of you know, when I was making work, I'm really influenced, as you can tell, probably like by a lot of fine artists, you know, mm-hmm. and I don't have a Marvel style. Like I'm not, there's a reason why I'm not drawing the ghost light book is because, you know, they want to, my, 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 my art style is very unconventional and not necessarily a mainstream style, but that, and I, and I think I let that stop me from developing. And I wanted to, I didn't know about the underground comics movement as much when I was younger and didn't realize that there's a space for everyone to make a, uh, to make a dent in this uh, industry. And so um, I would say, if I could go back in time and talk to my younger self and be like, yo, don't quit. Don't just because I happened, I stopped and I got a degree in graphic design, which is more practical. Right. And then eventually I, I circled back to comics because I've always loved the medium. But if I wish I could get those years back when I just didn't draw anything. you know. And yeah, so that's what I think. I remember this one time I was at a conference and you know Paul Pope was there. He was giving a lecture. and uh, This one student asked him like I want to be successful and I want to make a you know I want to make a difference in this industry you know what kind of what kind of uh, uh, advice do you, can you give me and he just said one statement that stuck with me he said you have to have fire in the belly and then he moved on to the next question <laughs> it was so great the student was like fire in the belly. <laughs> take, take notes yeah yeah uh, I, I just love that. It's like yes, because that's right. Because it's a it's a very difficult space to work in. But you know, once you start making comics, man, you can't you can't stop it. It's just I've tried to deny it, but I'm you know it's in my it's in my blood, it's in my bones. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm super excited about Silver Surfer Ghostlight, uh, especially after hearing more about the character and especially visually how you're presenting it. Yeah. I can't wait to read it all. Um, I've said it many times. I will again. If you want to see greater greater representation in comics, you have to buy it. Yes. Um, so <laughs> get to your local shop, hit up your local library, pick this up, put it in the hands of young people, feed the next generation of readers. I like to snag an extra copy when I can and just leave it somewhere knowing a kid will find it. Um, John, yeah, thanks so much for hanging out with me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. It's definitely been. I really appreciate it. And thank you for it, for your words. That's very kind. Yeah. 100%. Well, this is Byron O'Neill on behalf of all of us at Comic Book Yeti. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptid Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.